Welcome to Tess Podcast. I'm Gonya Hallahan, and today I'm joined by Professor Peter Fonagy, Head of Psychology and Language Sciences at University College London. Now the academic year has begun, it feels like the right time to turn our attention to those things that don't come to us straight away, those things that require time and some nurture, those things like attachment. So, Peter, hello. Thank you for joining us today. Pleased to be here. If we could start off with a definition of what attachment is. Attachment is a very simple biological process. Human beings come to this planet less prepared than most primates because we had to walk, because um, the birth canal is rather narrow. We had to actually be born with small heads and yet we have rather big heads that we need to carry on all the difficult things. Therefore, we are rather dependent. And because of that dependency, we need protection. And we need to find the person who's going to protect us. The person who's going to protect us is usually our primary caregiver. And we get attached to that person. So whenever we are anxious, whenever we feel frightened, we seek proximity to that person who is going to comfort us. We signal our fear by crying, by making a nuisance of ourselves in one way or another. And then uh, we approach that person, that person cuddles us, down-regulates our feelings, makes us feel better, and we then become attached to that person. So in the long run, there is no substitute for that person. So when you think about your mum, however, whatever you might feel about her, there is no replacement for her. Your mum is your mum. And uh, that's how it stays. So attachment really is a, a relationship that's born out of anxiety that actually helps with regulating that emotion and make the person feel better. And that experience of having been made feel better creates a bond. And that bond we refer to as attachment. It's so interesting that you talk about that, that important connection with the mother, because of course, when our children go to school, one of the biggest fears that sometimes parents say is that somebody else is going to replace them as the most important person in their life. And we know, of course, that nobody can really replace the mother. But that role of the teacher in the classroom and the attachment that the children form with the teacher, am I right in thinking that it needs to be a, like a parent-child relationship, or is it something completely different? Well, mothers need not be anxious, because actually human beings are like lions. They are born to be alloparented. When these systems developed, we walked as a troop of about 150 uh, people across the vast steppes of Africa, and always had a number of adults looking after a child. So what the child biologically expects is a number of people who are going to be an interest, who take an interest in them. Uh, so the teacher is just one other person to be attached to. Uh, now, there are primary attachment figures and there are some teachers that we get more attached to than others. And usually attachment is born out of a process of sensitive responding. So the more a child feels sensitively responded to by an adult, 
the more likely it is that they develop an attachment relationship with that person. So I remember from my childhood that I was much more attached to some teachers than others. And the teachers I was attached to were the ones who took an interest in me. And when they take an interest in you, you become more dependent on them, more uh, dependent is really quite an interesting thing. It's not that dependent is a bad thing. It is the person that you go and seek out when you feel distressed. And as I said, attachment is born out of fear. So when you see an attachment system working is when the child is scared and they seek out someone uh, to get comfort from. So I think teachers are right to be there, to become, particularly for young kids, to be there as kind of safe havens, as, as, as places that the child can come to when they feel distressed. But the child could have as many, uh, well, not as many, but four, five, six, seven, eight attachment figures without one negatively uh, uh, impacting on the other. That's really interesting because, of course, in a classroom situation, in, in even in primary schools where you tend to just have one teacher, you might have a class which is split between two different teachers. And in that class, you then might have LSA or TA support people in that classroom. Is is it a problem? Is it problematic if there's more teachers in that class for the child to become attached to? Or is that actually not, if you're talking about it's okay to have many different figures, is is it not, not a problem then? I don't think it's necessarily a problem. Mm. It would I would anticipate that one of those teachers will have a closer relationship with that particular child than the other, and that the child will develop an attachment relationship with one and less with the other. Uh, I think uh, to have a number of attachment figures probably on the whole makes a person more resilient, stronger, and uh, better able to cope with uh, different situations. So I would not... uh, want to recommend one or other model I think both are uh, extremely helpful and the whole the whole point of obviously being in a classroom and having the education system is to educate a child why is attachment important when it comes to education why does it matter when you're trying to teach somebody how attached they feel to you that's a brilliant question that's a really really good question Uh, because we know that children who have secure attachment relationships actually learn better. We have known that for a long, long time, but we never really quite understood why that was. Now, it turns out that there is probably a biologically rooted system that identifies for us who it is that we should listen to, who it is that we should trust. Because when you are in a troop of 150 people or more and when you are in a world now with a cacophony of information all around us we we can't listen to everything we have to have a biological way of focusing on the person who is going to relay to us the information that's relevant to us that we can use that we can generalize to other situations so it turns out there's a biological system that helps us identify the person who is going to convey that information and that's the person who takes an interest in us so i used when i was a child which is some years ago uh, i had a teacher who we all loved 
the whole class uh, loved her. And she was, well, she was a good teacher, but uh, she did something that none of the other teachers did, which is at the end of each term, she gave each of us a little book that she selected specially for that person. And we just thought she was marvelous. And I still remember some of the things that she taught me. And I can assure you this was some years ago. And I spent years trying to figure out why I got the books that I got from her. I couldn't quite figure that. Then in the end, I realized she gave them out randomly. <laughs> but we all felt so deeply recognized yeah. by her as individuals that we couldn't but feel that she was the person that was going to tell us the things that were most important. Mm -hmm. And this biological system of learning that we call epistemic trust or the trust in knowledge mm -hmm. actually opens the mind up to, to learning from that individual in that context. So if you recognize me as an agent, as a person, I will be more likely to learn from you. Mm -hmm. We've just done a study which uh, is one of the silliest studies I've ever done in my life. And it really is, uh, you, when I tell you about it, it's, you'll see this is a really silly study. All that we did uh, was um, invite participants in for what is called an implicit learning task. Implicit learning means that you get a list of words that you've got to make a judgment about. Is this a good word or a bad word? And then at the end, unexpectedly, you're asked to remember, mm -hmm. recall the words. How many can you uh, recall? Now, it turns out that if you invite participant by their first name, you know, Dick, Kate, could you come? Or in the experiment, which actually is run by a computer, the computer asks the participant what their name is and calls that person by, by Kate, this is your first ask or whatever. At the end, people will remember more words than if they weren't called by their name. <laughs> it is stupid, isn't it? But it makes sense. Yeah. As you're saying that, I can understand why that works because you feel like it's of more importance. You feel like this is particularly for you, like you must pay attention to this because yeah. we're using your name. Yeah. And in a classroom, when a teacher knows the names of all of her students, although it's quite a superficial thing to do, that must be a very good way to ensure that your students start that very beginnings of the feelings of attachment towards you. Yes. Yeah. Does that sound? That's absolutely right. That just being recognized, being sensitively responded to as you, mm. uh, that your learning needs, your specific learning needs being identified, mm. uh, your ambitions being identified, yeah. being related to in a very personal sort of way makes the channel of communication between the instructor and the learner more efficient. And that is a biological process uh, mm. that is very sensible because how, how else would a child know the, from a wide range of possible source of information 
they should focus down on. Mm. Uh, so for teachers, I think this process of trust or epistemic trust, trust in knowledge, is really, I think, relevant and important. That teaching to a class mm. uh, is obviously uh, of you know, it's, it's, it's what they've got yeah. to do, and there is on a limited extent to which they can recognize each child yeah. specifically. But nevertheless, being able to create an illusion mm. that they are recognizing uh, each child individually is where the art is. Mm. That's where the art of teaching is. Now, there's a group of people who can really do this well, and we call them politicians, <laughs> uh, because politicians can address a crowd of a thousand yeah. and make everyone feel that they're speaking specifically to them. Uh, and I, I mean, I have a personal experience in relation to that. I, I once I was on uh, the presidential uh, commission to prevent violence. And I met as a consequence many, many years ago, I met Bill Clinton. Uh, oh, wow. And, uh, you know, I had a meeting of about 45 seconds. I probably exaggerate. Uh, it probably only was 30 seconds with Bill Clinton. But during that time, he made me feel that I was the only person that he was interested in. And, you know, that, I, that he cared about me more than anyone else. Yeah. And it made an incredible impression on me that obviously he is an artist. You know, mm. He's, mm. he can just do that. Uh, yeah. He was, I don't know, born with the capacity or whatever. But... So it was an illusion, but creating an illusion that you are uh, able to address each individual personally mm. um, is, I think, part of what the art of excellent, outstanding teaching is about. When you look at really good teachers and ones that are, you know, just average teachers, I think the difference that you see is that the really good teachers make the children feel... Mm. Uh, that they are, that they matter individually. And those things that you mentioned, like their ambitions and what their interests are and how they uh, sort of how they perceive themselves, those sorts of things often come up when you're having off-topic conversations, when yeah. they're the sort of conversations you might have in the corridor or before the lesson starts or at the end of a lesson. So it's not always what you're delivering when you get those, that, those, those important starts of attachment. And... I guess is it the questions that we should ask our students? Is it if you were if you were going to try and teach somebody how to do this with their class? I mean, you know, that's a very you know that's that's a very pertinent question. And if I was a good teacher, then I probably could answer you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I I I, I do not have uh, mm. the art. But uh, I think the important thing uh, is uh, perhaps much more. Uh, to do with having that person's perspective in mind. Mm. That is, that you can see where that kid, how that kid sees the world. So yeah. if you can put yourself in that person's shoes, that person will trust you, will become attached at a certain level and will trust the information that you provide them with. And that's interesting, the way that they think that they see you as a student. Is that important then in the in the classroom? I I I think it is. I, personally, I think it is um, that uh, that they see uh, you as, as as someone who is uh, 
concerned about the men who can see the world from their perspective, mm. uh, can you know, can actually see where they are struggling. Yeah. Uh, where and if I feel that you recognize you as a teacher recognize where I have difficulty, mm. that will make me respond in a more trusting way yeah. to that learning experience. And and it's to me that's a very simple process, but it shows how attachment actually overlaps with teaching and is not necessarily something that is uh, a, a kind of completely separate yeah. uh, process that you know just happens between parent and child and uh, has nothing to do with education. And going back to what you said at the start about that very first attachment that you form with your mother and with your parents. If you don't form a strong attachment to your mother, does that affect the way that you form attachments later in life? Well, the, you know, I don't want to uh, be a, a developmental determinist. I don't want to uh, say that, ah, oh, well, if it's gone wrong yeah. in the first years, it's uh, gone wrong. That's Actually, the evidence is not entirely consistent with that. I would say that it starts you off well. Uh, it starts you on the right foot. If you had a good relationship, uh, you're more likely to have subsequent good relationships. Mm. But if you have a bad experience, then that it doesn't protect you. Uh, mm. The early good doesn't protect you from the subsequent yeah. bad. And we shouldn't kind of be complacent and say, well, as long as the first few years were fine, mm. anything can happen to mm. them. That's not how it is. No. Uh, but certainly if you had an early experience where you were neglected, uh, where maybe you were uh, maltreated as some children are, then you get very confused about who you can trust and who you can't trust. Yeah. And then you uh, flip-flop between uh, not trusting anybody being in a state of kind of epistemic hypervigilance, I would call it. Yes. So that you 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 are going round feeling no one understands you. I'm all on my own. I you know I can't trust anybody. I can't listen to anybody, uh, and that sets you off on the wrong foot. Mm. And that would make you a difficult child to teach. Yes. Uh, because you don't trust the knowledge that comes from the other. Uh, but that actually is not on its own. It kind of flips into uh, from this hypervigilance to an indiscriminate uh, listening or indiscriminate nature of relationships that some children develop and they listen to people they shouldn't listen to. Right. Uh, which, you know, we can see in gangs and yeah. Uh, yeah. little uh, clusters of children that get formed where... They they feel so lonely that then then they yeah. then have to form relationships, but that these relationships are usually not very mature no. uh, and uh, are, are quite difficult to uh, manipulate to 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 get into. So that kind of hypervigilance and that mm. kind of having been neglected, having been maltreated, actually sets you up with educationally on a quite a difficult path. But it can be very hard for a teacher to break through and mm. the child might need a lot of additional effort yeah. before they can develop a feeling of trust towards that person. 
Uh, but if some children are there, they open their mind and, you know, they lie on their back and they just tickle my tummy, you know. Uh, <laughs> just tell me, just tell me. I just want to know. And they're curious and they want to hear and they are very rewarding to teach. And other children are much more cautious, much more suspicious and they're much more difficult to teach, much more challenging to teach and require a lot more patience, a lot more commitment. Uh, but as I said, I'm not a developmental determinist. No. I think those things can be overcome, mm. uh, but they do need additional effort. Now, in a primary school situation, that ability to overcome those problems when you just have mainly one or perhaps two teachers for the whole of your school day, those sort of bonds that you can make with a child and so they can trust and so they can trust a reliable person and someone who has their in best interest at heart. When they move then into the secondary school, you switch from having that one person who is there for you all day long to having multiple teachers spread out across many different rooms, perhaps over several different school buildings that you have to navigate and move between. And we have this transition between year six and year seven, between the ages of 11 and 12. And we expect so much from those children, but for those that do struggle with attachment, what would that transition, what, what are the consequences of transitioning in that way? It can be, as we know, it can be very challenging. Mm. And uh, some children actually do not do very well. Uh, the children who had been successful in primary school or relatively successful managed, mm. once they arrive to secondary school and there is indeed uh, less individual attention to them, they move back into a kind of mental state of suspiciousness and they find it far more difficult to um, actually learn. Sometimes, you know, sometimes the, the, the results aren't very good. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, we as psychologists worry quite a bit uh, about that transition process and how we could make it better, how we could make it easier, what we can do. And nobody has really, as far as I'm concerned, come up with a really good yeah. idea. The um, problem biologically, looking at it from the point of view of what the mechanisms underpinning are, uh, this are, uh, that in around that age, you know, between 11 and 14, children actually stop using uh, their parents as the primary source of support. Mm. They stop using, I would say, um, adults in general as their primary source of support, and they turn to their peers. Mm. So um, the one of the um, unexpected, uh, unanticipated side effects of prolonging secondary education, which obviously is of enormous value in every possible way. But one of the problems with it is that, of course, the amount of contact between an adult and the child is reduced because of the size of the school, the size of the class, and uh, the complexity of the social system. So that in modern society, other children, other young people, become the primary socializing agents for children and young people. Mm. And that is a good thing to a certain point, but not a terribly good thing. No. Uh, or it can be mixed. In some situations, it is. 
what we, I think, need to pay more attention to, mm-hmm. that we feel as adults that really what matters most is the child's communication with us. Uh, and that we, if we are just, if we are, look, look, I am telling you, you know, and actually 75% of that child's attention between 11 and 16 is not on us, no. but is on their peer group. Yeah. So I think we have to pay a lot more attention to influencing the peer group and actually influencing the community yeah. Yeah. Uh, than we normally do, because actually the community that the young person or child is in is more influential, particularly as you look into the future. So we did a study uh, looking at resilience. Mm -hmm. Who were the kids who were resilient? When you look at kids around that age that you mentioned in a kind of cross-sectional way, if parents are supportive and interested in the child, the kid will be resilient. If they have good peer relationships, the kid will be, is likely to be resilient. They both make a contribution. Predicting forward three years, who is going to be resilient in three years, the picture changes. Mm. Actually, having a peer group that's supportive does predict resilience. Having parents who are interested in you predicts the absence of resilience. So, you know, and that when you think about it for a moment, it makes a lot of sense. (laughs) If parents take too much interest in you, Mm. that actually makes you too dependent and less willing to actually take a kind of natural course of developmental progression where your attachment start moving from grown-ups, from adults, from big people to Mm. your peer group, which is what it's supposed to do. And really developing those bonds that children do in secondary school between each other is enormously important. So uh, I know that my kids are still, you know, and they are in their late 20s, but they still have links and good relationships with kids that they actually made bonds with in their secondary school. So from the point of view of advice to teachers, I I just think, look, it's not just you. So, you know, what you should actually pay attention to also when you think about attachment is how your kids in your class attach to each other. And that trying to ensure doing a little bit of social engineering Mm -hmm. that to make sure that kids link with each other in a productive and healthy way and identifying unhealthy, unproductive relationships is as much part of your responsibility and the recipe for good learning as the kids' relationship with you. Whereas in primary school teachers, I would say it's the, it's the teacher. Uh, later on, it's still teacher is important, but I think also pay attention to how the kids relate to each other. So that that's, it's, it's it, like I say, it almost feels counterintuitive, but when you do think about it, it, it makes perfect sense. And that role of the like peer mentors in classes and the, the importance of the form group, which, of course, doesn't have any sort of educational purpose, but it's purely pastoral yeah. in those sorts of incidents, in, like, circumstances. Yes, it's the, it's the relationships between the students that really, really count. OK, so in a classroom, you have a teacher who has excellent attachment with the class. They get on really well they understand all of the students the students enjoy being in the classroom they feel safe there if an incident happens right before the lesson 
and a student comes in and they've just been sworn at by another student and they're very upset, does having a strong attachment with the teacher mean you won't ever have conflict in that classroom? Or is there still then the potential for a student to kick off and have a, an argument with the teacher in, in a situation like that where you do have good relationships? Should you expect to then have zero behaviour problems in your class? I would not anticipate zero behaviour problems because we're dealing with human beings. So human beings have behaviour problems. They're just part of uh, the species, you know, and, 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 they, and, and that what a teacher in that situation can do is to distract, you know, by if that teacher is a kind of safe haven um, and the kid comes in upset, then by linking by noticing that and responding to that kid sensitively um, that that teacher is able to distract and downregulate mm. the kid if they don't have the time if there's a lot of other things going on uh, they can't be expected to uh, to be able to relate to every single human incident mm. what we have found uh, looking at this uh, is that Actually, what helps most is making the kids take a little bit of responsibility for what's going on themselves. Mm -hmm. So in the case of bullying, for example, mm -hmm. in the, both the bully and the victim are far too emotionally aroused. Mm -hmm. And when they're emotionally aroused, the part of their brain that is, should be there for learning and understanding is just not there. Mm -hmm. And to try and address that directly is actually very, on the whole, very challenging and very difficult for both because they can't reflect. You're asking a kid who has just been bullied what has happened and what, you know, asking a kid who's just, but what do you think uh, your victim? They can't do it. They're absent for that. Yeah. What actually, what we found helpful is to ask the bystanders, to ask the other kids uh, who are around, okay, okay, but you went, can you tell me what happened here? Yeah. And actually, the person who can reflect, who can actually narrate the event, mm -hmm. is, not, is not the participant, mm. but the bystander. And if you want to, we have found that one of the ways to stop bullying mm -hmm. is by strengthening the community of bystanders. Yeah. And the kind of peer interventions, the kind of peer mentoring mm. or whatever... Uh, peer systems that you can establish are enormously helpful because you're then leaning on kids who whose brain hasn't gone AWOL mm. uh, who ha hasn't switched off and um, who's, you know, who are still there yeah. and can reflect and then they are able to bring everyone uh, back online It's the Benfolio Yeah, exactly <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and Romeo, yeah. what's happened? Yeah, exactly. It's picking somebody. And then, what do you think the person who is involved in the conflict then, hearing what someone else has witnessed, does it change the way that they then might? You can resolve the problem as a teacher because you're hearing what's happened from somebody who's not directly involved. Mm -hmm. But as somebody who is in the middle of the argument, hearing somebody recount what you've just done. What does that make you do then? But usually, say, usually, yeah. uh, it makes everyone's behaviour understandable. Mm. 
So, you know, you they kids are able to explain, but look, Johnny actually used uh, Stephen's uh, pencil mm -hmm. and Stephen wanted his pencil back and grabbed it. And then, you know, Johnny hit Stephen or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. You know, and then it, it all becomes clear mm -hmm. what happened. And uh, that kind of clarity, that kind of explanation mm -hmm. within the brain, it turns out, actually serves to downregulate. Mm -hmm. Having an explanation of the thoughts, the feelings, the beliefs, the wishes, the desires that actually motivate us. Yeah. what we call mentalizing, you know, just yeah. having a, a, an understanding in terms of mental states actually makes for good control of behavior. Uh, and what actually these other kids do, the bystanders do, is that they, without knowing what the word means, they yeah. mentalize. Uh, they, they give an explanation in terms of thoughts, feelings, beliefs, wishes, desires, in terms of psychological states yeah or what went on in that interaction. And that actually makes for forgiveness. Mm. Once you understand someone's actions in terms of what has motivated them, nine times out of ten, that becomes apparently less vicious, evil, you know, uh, terrible, inconscionable, you know, yeah, unconscionable. Yeah. You know, it, it becomes something that, oh, yeah, okay, now I understand. Yeah. It's kind of, well, I wouldn't have done that myself, but... I, at least I understand. Uh, now there's this thing with kids when they when they come up in year seven, they're sweet little things and they seem very like little mini miniature adults, and you think you're so together, you're really, you know, you're, they're doing really well in school. And then when they get to about thirteen, we have this sudden re like return to the toddler. Why does that happen? Well, the different parts of the brain develop at different rates. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a little bit unfortunate for humans. There probably is a biological reason why this should be so. And at one point in our evolution, it might even have been helpful. Um, but it nowadays doesn't turn out to have a lot of value. But basically, the part of the brain that drive emotion mm -hmm. uh, develop more rapidly uh, than the part of the brain that control emotion. So at a certain stage of development, uh, you have a, 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 a toddler that's driving a Ferrari. Uh, so you have uh, the power and engine of, you know, something uh, of, uh, uh, you know, really an almost adult intensity. And at the same time, the the capacity for regulating and controlling is just simply not there, mm. not there yet. So I'm sure that you will remember, and certainly I remember, uh, in adolescence, things happen and they leave a really deep imprint because that was just emotionally so important. For example, I remember the first time I kissed a girl. I just remember that. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, the last time, mm, <laughs> you know, a bit more of a stretch. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it it yeah. it's a uh, you know the emotional significance of things mm. at that point is far greater. Uh, so they go through a phase between I would say uh, eleven and twelve and about twenty five. <laughs> After twenty five, it goes downhill. <laughs> uh, but that you know where there is a gradual maturation mm. of the part of the brain that uh, 
imposes this kind of cognitive control over our behavior. And um, at a particular phase, we are probably quite vulnerable, mm. that we are vulnerable to impulsivity, we are vulnerable to acting out, we are vulnerable to doing things without thinking, mm. we are very vulnerable, particularly to peer pressure. Yeah. Uh, so uh, kids, when somebody's watching them, act in more risky ways than when they're on their own. Mm. Uh, so when you have a kid driving a, a, a some kind of uh, a computer game where they're kind of driving thing, yeah. you know, if they drive on their own, they drive like I do, you know, like a sixty-five-year-old. <laughs> Whereas uh, when they there's another uh, kid next to them, they go boom, 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 you know, uh, <laughs> yes. you know uh, take massive risks. Yeah. Um, so it's really a combination of how kids influence each other, kind of resonate with you, set each other off, uh, potentially, and they have limited capacity uh, mm. to actually being able to um, uh, to cope. So it creates a vulnerability, which is probably, it turns out, is not a good thing. Mm. I, I, and I can't give you a better explanation as to why that is, but it, it just seems to be so. And attachment going forward... Mm -hmm. As we t our children go off and leave leave school and go on to further education, higher education, do the attachments they form with their teachers impact the way that they then engage with education for the rest of their lives? Again, I'm not a developmental determinist. <laughs> so, you know, things happen yeah. in human life. Mm -hmm. And when things happen, they kind of, it's, you know, if you turn left first, yeah. you're then more likely to end up left. Mm -hmm. If you turn right, you're more likely to turn up. But this is reversible. You can, yeah. you know... Uh, so I have known kids who went through remarkable recovery, had terrible times in adolescence. They met a good uh, mentor mm -hmm. later on, and they were brought out and they were rescued. Uh, what I would emphasize is that one good relationship, when you have someone who's really... Make, able to make you feel that they're interested in you, that they care about you, can actually reverse uh, a history of pretty bad things. Not in everyone. Mm. Uh, and of course, if you had uh, a negative time, you're more likely to approach your university or your, your apprenticeship or whatever ex with suspicion yeah. and, and avoidance and not necessarily a particularly productive or helpful attitude. So you set yourself up with a difficult situation. So probabilistically, you're right. But I'm very reluctant to say that there's any kind of inevitability about that because um, it remains, I think, up to old age, open to someone, even with very poor experiences, to actually discover a attachment relationship where they feel loved, worried about, mm -hmm. cared about, uh, focused on, which actually can, to a large measure, reverse the mm -hmm. unfortunate experiences of early on. Now, there are, it, obviously, any experience leaves a footprint on the brain. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you the development of your brain basically is based on experience. Mm. So if you had parents 
who talk to you a lot. Mm. You will learn language faster. You will be a better speaker. And there are certain things like language that have critical periods that are, you know, have to learn it. I learned English, the second language, at age 15. Mm. So I speak with a terrible accent, which is, uh, uh, you know, anyway, my vowels are appalling. And my wife mocks me mercilessly, mercilessly. But, you know, it's all right. We have been married for 35 years. So it's, it won. I've got used to it. But anyway, uh, the, uh, the, the point um, really is that in terms of relationships, there is probably also, there are probably critical periods. So probably early up to five mm -hmm. and then uh, in adolescence, particularly with peer relationships, these are important and formative and will leave um, an imprint yeah. on what comes later. But um, I would rather not uh, be cornered into saying mm. that, you know, that this is uh, any kind of inevitability. It's a probabilistic relationship. But that one teacher who has yeah. a positive relationship can reverse it all. I do. I strongly believe that that one teacher who takes interest in one child in a particularly productive can and, you know, I, I hate using the word should, but maybe we should all try. Um, I mean, I have a very uh, simplistic view of mental health, if I can just uh, express that. We all have mental health. We all do more or less well. In fact, the chances of any of us developing a, a, a diagnosis of mental illness, uh, mostly not diagnosed, but, you know, just we just is about probably between 80 and 85 percent. So, you know, it's it's pretty like mental illness is like the common cold. We'll mm. catch it, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the ones that we notice are probably the kids and, and adults who have it, a number of them, and have it fairly severely. And it's not a passing cold, mm. but actually something that they say. Um, I do believe because mental health problems are ubiquitous, everyone has it. We all have it. I believe that the pressure on mental health professionals to actually sort it all out, mm. that we just refer this kid to someone who is a qualified psychologist, mm. is well-placed and appropriate, but probably not in the kind of numbers that we actually see children and young people having mental health problems. I think it's an issue of a community. It's an issue of for all of us to have more understanding, more willingness to support, greater concern to our fellow humans, whether these are kids or adults, mm. that actually we are as responsible for their mental health as the professional. And to be truthful about it, I think all the evidence points to children and young people and adults improving when their mental health improves, not so much because of what a mental health professional has achieved, mm. but because that relationship has enabled them to have a better relationship with the community. Mm. So the reality is that maybe we can do more to actually engage 
those people who temporarily were excluded or felt themselves excluded from the community mm. to help them re-engage. And that's really all that, as people, we expect, is to be held maybe not just by a single attachment figure, yeah. but by a, an entire group, by an entire society, so to feel that we belong and we are cared about. Well, that feels like a lovely message to, to end on. Thank you so much for coming in today, Peter. My pleasure. My pleasure.